Hey everyone, welcome to Evangel Church Online, a safe place to explore faith in Jesus, receive his love, and look more and more like him each day. And today, we're going to be talking about minding your mind. Hey everybody, my name is Lucas. I'm one of the pastors here at Evangel Church and we are located in uh, Powell River, British Columbia. And if you're in the region and we haven't met yet, we'd love to meet you. Uh, consider coming to one of our services, in-person gatherings. Uh, Sundays at 10 o'clock in the morning, uh, we gather for church and as the church. So we'd love to see you there and meet you there. So can I ask you a question to start today? What's on your mind? What, what's on your mind? Have you ever asked this question before? You know, sometimes usually when we ask this question, we're trying to make conversation, right? We're trying to engage someone. What's on your mind? What occupies your thoughts? What are you thinking about? In fact, uh, I often ask this question of Lisa. If I see her and she's kind of looks like she's got something on her mind, I'll ask, what are you thinking about? And it's funny because she'll like, she knows over the years now that she'll just dumb it down for me because she's got about a thousand things going on in her mind at the same time, which I don't understand at all. Because every once in a while, she'll ask me the same question. And more often than not, my answer is nothing. Nothing's on my mind. Um, and it actually kind of makes her mad that I'm able to not have anything on my mind. But what's on your mind? Um, this is a question that tells, it kind of speaks to who you are, to who, what, you, what captures your thoughts, what um, captures your attention and your time, your mental time. And this is a question that can give us some insight into what we value, what we fear, what we're looking forward to, what we're excited about, what we're scared about, what, what we have doubts about, what we're skeptical about or cynical about. or it, it's, it's this kind of like menagerie of the good and the bad and the ugly when it comes to our thought life. The title of my sermon today is Minding your mind. As I was preparing for this sermon, I took a look at some studies that are out there about um, thought life and how the, the benefits of a particular thought life over others and the health benefits and all of the things. And of, of course, um, studies like this don't lend themselves necessarily to faith. They, they lend themselves to more like positive thinking or uh, people that are more optimistic than other people, which which, by the way, optimism in a lot of ways is a pattern of thinking. It is a way in which someone engages the world in the way they think and the way they perceive the world around them. So here's what studies have shown in terms of just real world application of those that are more optimistic than perhaps others. You ready? Increased lifespan. They found increased lifespan. Lower rates of depression. Lower levels of distress and pain. Greater resistance to illness, better psychological and physical well-being, better. And this is an interesting one. And this, this, as I was doing some study on this, this came up over and over again, better cardiovascular health and reduced risk of death from cardiovascular disease and stroke, reduced risk of death from cancer, reduced risk of death from respiratory conditions, reduced risk of death from infections better coping skills during hardships and times of stress. Now, William Barclay, he writes this, the human mind will always set itself on something. 
It'll always set itself on something. This is something of the utmost importance because it is a law of life that if we think of something often enough, we will come to the stage where we cannot stop thinking about it. Our thoughts will be quite literally in a groove out of which we cannot jolt them. Sometimes what occupies our minds uh, gives us life and it's, and it's good things. It's, it's things that are lovely and things that bring joy and peace and a sense of thankfulness and, and all of that to our lives. However, oftentimes our thought life, the patterns of our thinking can become a place of fear and anger, envy, striving, and a whole multitude of other things that lead us to death and unhealth in our thought life. So with that out of the way, did you know that the biblical worldview, that the scriptures actually call us to be thoughtful about the patterns of our thoughts? Did, did you know that we are to take inventory of how we think in this time and this time before Christ's return in this life that we have? The biblical worldview, it asks us to mind our mind. To apply filters that keep us engaged in those things that bring life rather than death. Because our thought life eventually manifests in our lived life. Our thought life eventually will manifest in our lived life and experience. And what you believe about yourself, what you believe about the world, about your neighbor, about God, begins to shape your behavior. But it also carries psychological consequences as well, both good and bad. And we talked about that a little bit at the top. So if you're writing notes, uh, if you like to write notes, write this down. Your lived life is a result of your thought life. Your lived life is a result of your thought life. Let's take a moment to pray. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and you would lead and guide us in truth today. We thank you, Lord God, that you are the one who uh, leads us in truth, that you are the one who changes our mind about things, about our paradigm, about the way we see the world, the way we see eternity, the way we see ourselves and our God and the Spirit at work. Oh, Lord, would you change us today? Would you, would you give us a sense that we can change the patterns of our thoughts so that they will manifest in the way we live our lives for your kingdom purposes, for the sake of your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2, 16, For who has understood the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? And he's asking a question. It's a rhetorical question. But he follows up with this. But we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. There's something fundamentally different about the one who is a redeemed and it is in Christ Jesus. We have a capacity fueled by the Holy Spirit along with the scriptures to guide us to in part have the mind of Christ. This is such a powerful truth that scripture presents to us. If this wasn't true, Paul wouldn't write to the, to the Romans. He says in Romans 12 too, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. 
that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Remember those, those thought patterns we walk in kind of by default. Paul is asking us to partner with the Spirit to change our mind, to change our patterns of thought, to change the way we perceive God, the world, our neighbor, and ourselves. There's this, this such a powerful um, mandate that we're given by Scripture. Now, to be conformed, is to think like everyone thinks. So to be conformed is to think like everyone thinks. To be transformed is to think like you were created to think. These are big differences. To be transformed is more than just, it's more than just a change of thinking. It also becomes a change in our living because your lived life is a result of your thought life. But this is a process. We, we don't do this in a moment. We do this over time. We discipline ourselves. We, we walk in consistency. We're intentional about considering our mind. We're intentional about considering the thought patterns that we have adopted. And we begin to ask questions like, does this come into alignment with who God is, who he created me to be, and what my purposes are in this world? So how do we determine what is allowed to take residence in our minds and what is not? Well, Paul, he gives us a great filter in Philippians 4, 8 to 9. So if you have your Bible, turn Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 to 9. We're going to camp there for the rest of our time together. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to get you one. Visit myevangel.church forward slash Bible. And there's some links that we can get you set up right now, right away to follow along with us. So this is where we're going to camp out. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What have you learned and received and heard and have seen in me? Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Now, how many times have you read this? Like me, I'm guilty of this too. And you almost read it like a, in a general sense, right? Like these are all good things. He's talking about things that are lovely and true and honorable. And we kind of, we kind of see them all as sort of the general same thing. Just think about good things, godly things, things that are Godly, right? And we kind of move on pretty quickly from this passage. But today, I want to take us a little bit deeper into the meaning of what this is in terms of what Paul is trying to say to the Philippians. In the words of Malcolm Gladwell, let's descend into the specifics a little bit. William Barclay's commentary, uh, by the way, was a huge help in, in the preparation for this sermon because he compiled a lot of the Greek definitions and meanings and so he made my work pretty easy and so I will be referring to him a little bit as we go through today finally brothers whatever is true this is the beginning this is the starting place this is a list this is number one on the list and what a profound place to start set your mind on what is true there's something both powerful and terrifying 
about this concept, this concept of objective truth. It's powerful because there's clarity in it. Like the truth is truth. And so there's such a profound clarity that we find in truth. So much of life carries complexity. It carries nuance. It carries uh, filters of our emotions and our thought patterns and I mean, even our emotions in terms of levels of health, you know, sometimes we'll see the world in a certain way when our emotions are healthy and when they're not healthy, we see in a different way. But truth kind of cuts through the noise. It cuts through all of it and it's objective and it's true and it brings clarity. But for the same reason that truth is powerful, it's also terrifying because truth asks us to change. Truth, it will asks us to change and to come into alignment with the truth. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, why, why between soul and spirit? Because the soul represents that kind of part of us that is our, our mental uh, and emotional um, presence within this life. That, that kind of, um, they're so interconnected, it's hard to separate them. But we could talk about the patterns of the mind within the concept of the soul. And so, why soul and spirit? Why does the word of God, the truth of God, cut between soul and spirit? Because the truth of God's word pierces beyond what we feel about it to that inward confirmation of the spirit in us that it's true and that we have to become uncomfortable and to die in the flesh, to die in our paradigm, our patterns of thinking, our comfort levels, all of that. The truth demands that we change. At Evangel, we say it all the time, engaging biblical truth will change your life. And we believe that in searching, you will find truth. We believe truth is personified in Jesus, who is God. And this is, this is why this idea of change, this is why repentance is such a big part of the gospel message. Because repentance is not just acknowledging in theory the truth, but it's also turning away and walking away from that old pattern of thinking, those old behaviors, those old ways of living, and we walk into something new. We don't bend Jesus and the word to our truth. We bend ourselves to his truth. So we start with the mind. We start by asking the question, is this true? Is this thing, this concept, this situation, this person, all of these kind of ideas, everything that's going on in our lives, we ask, is this true? Am I giving space to this story, to this thing, to this idea? Is it true? Does it come into alignment with the word of God. And this is the process we begin to take as we change our lives because your lived life is a result of your thought life. 
And as truth reshapes the way we think, we begin to live differently in this world. But how many of you know that truth on its own is only part of the answer? Truth can be used to bring life, but truth can also be used as a weapon to be yielded. So much of wielding truth in this world is really about the motivation of the heart. Is it coming from a place of love? Is it coming from a place of being right? Is it coming from a place of pride? Is it coming from a place of humility? This changes the way we interact with truth in so many ways. So it can't just be about truth. There has to be more of a filter that fills our minds, that occupies kind of that space of patterns of thinking. So let's move on. Whatever is honorable, Paul says. So some translations, maybe in your translation, it says honest. Whatever is honest. And this is because the Greek word that's used here, uh, semnos, it's a very difficult word to kind of translate in the English. Uh, Barclay writes this about semnos. The word really describes that which has the dignity of holiness upon it. Man, I love that. Can I read that again? The word really describes that which has the dignity of holiness upon it. Now remember, holiness is this idea of set apart for the purposes of God. Holiness upon it. And I love this description. Does, does that thought or that thing that is occupying your mind, does it have the dignity of holiness upon it? Would it be welcomed into the presence of God, into that very place that God dwells? And this is kind of a catch-22. I'm kind of being a little facetious because we know the biblical concept of the temple in the New Testament is we are the temples of the Holy Spirit. And so we have a responsibility to clear out the temple and to make sure that there's a dignity of holiness upon the thoughts and the things that occupy our minds. Barclay writes, There are things in this world which are flippant, and cheap and attractive to those who never take life seriously. But it is on the things which are serious and dignified that Christians will set their minds. The dignity of holiness. When paired with truth, we see a growing understanding of the thought patterns of the Christian. We, we can ask, is this true? And is this in the attitude in which I'm carrying this truth? The attitude in which I'm carrying this truth around, does it have the dignity of holiness upon it? Paul goes on, whatever is just, whatever is just. Here we come to another word in the Greek that carries so much more meaning than we would maybe extract by just reading it into the English. And so the translation here, the word uh, is dikaios, and the word in the ancient Greek world described one who gives to gods or people what is their due. Now remember, the apostles in writing, Paul in writing, is borrowing from the Greek language and concepts from the Greek language. And so in the ancient Greek world, this would describe one who gives to gods or people what they are due. So let's redeem that language like the apostles would have as they're writing this. And let's kind of bring this into a biblical worldview. Dikaios then is the biblical worldview that you have a duty to God and a duty to your neighbor. 
You have a duty to God and a duty to your neighbor. This may be one of those very difficult filters for us to remove our patterns of thought from simply thinking about ourselves and our own well-being to this idea and this understanding that we have a duty and a responsibility to God, but also to our neighbor, to others around us. We have a duty to them. To, to consider yourself duty-bound to God um, and duty-bound to others, this, this can be a difficult concept. Can, can you imagine the outcome of lives that live this way, though? Like, just think of the potential of the church. I want, I want you to, to even think of the potential of your life. The potential of your life. If you were able to, over the course of time, with discipline, with the Holy Spirit, in partnership with the Spirit, in partnership with the Word of God that speaks of who you are and what you're called to and what your purposes are, can you imagine the shift and change in your life that would take place when you begin to consider your duty to God, His plans, His purposes for you, and your duty to the others around you? Man, what a powerful concept. How would that shift and change our behavior? How would that shift and change the way in which we present ourselves to the world? This, this idea comes into alignment with another idea that's, that's presented us in, in the teachings of Paul when he says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. This, this really follows the theological understanding of being a believer in Jesus. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Your lived life is a result of your thought life. Paul goes on to say, whatever is pure. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but just, just suffices to say, this is you can think of this kind of as things that are morally clean. So as you consider your thought life, the things that have captured your thoughts, your patterns of thinking, is this morally clean? And then Paul continues, whatever is lovely. Now, I don't know about you guys, but uh, after I became a dad, I became a big softy. It kind of just came out of left field for me. Uh, kind of the, if I was going to point to one moment where I realized this, it was when I was watching a Tim Hortons commercial after I had become a dad. And I just remember this commercial was about a father and a son and it just made me cry. In fact, Lisa was on the couch watching with me and she looked over and she said, are you, are you crying? Because she couldn't believe it because uh, up until that day, I, I wasn't very sentimental. I haven't been very sentimental. I'm a little bit of a, if anything, the pattern of my mind would lend to cynicism as opposed to optimism. And so this moment was a little bit weird for me to begin engaging these feelings and extracting what is lovely out of this Tim Hortons commercial and it impacting me in such a way. And, and this is kind of an indication of what is lovely. One of the better words to describe this would be, uh, what is winsome? What is winsome? This isn't a word that we often use. Barclay writes, the Greek is prophelos. And it might be paraphrased as that which calls forth love. That which calls forth love, the winsome things of the world, the things that draw your attention to the lovely, to the things that are of love in this world. Part of the reason that Lisa was surprised to see me crying at that commercial is, 
is like I said, I, I tend to be kind of more cynical and cold. And, and so this one kind of hits for me to overcome cynicism, to overcome jadedness. I don't know if there's others that are, are that's more your natural in the flesh bend, because that's mine. But to overcome that, you, you must and I must discipline our minds to identify and to extract out of this world the things that are lovely, the things that, that pull out love, the things that call forth love. Paul goes on, whatever is commendable, or, or you might say of good report, maybe some of your translations say of good report. If there is any excellence, uh, your translation may say uh, virtue. And this is such an interesting word here. Because in the Greek, this is kind of classical Greek. This is a word that was used often within the Greek language. And Paul tends to shy away from this word. In fact, in all of his writings, this is the first time and only time that he uses this word. And the word is arete. And it describes any kind of excellence found anywhere. Any kind of excellence found anywhere. So... It, it kind of carries this concept that goes beyond just um, the, the narrow margins of faith. It's going, look at the expanse of the world and you will find excellence in all places. Um, so this, this word, you know, you could use that. That's an excellent car. That's an excellent employee. That's an excellent movie. Uh, an excellent poem. That is excellent ground to harvest. You know, like... There, there's so many ways it kind of opens up the expanse of all of the world. And that's kind of how it was used. And so here, there's kind of this idea that Paul is saying, there is excellence in this world. Yes, we're a part of a broken and fallen world. But there's still remnants and moments that are captured in this identity of God, the, the creator being identified um, in his creation, not, not in a pantheistic way, but just simply when we see acts of courage, when we see acts of selflessness or bravery, um, when we identify uh, good deeds of love, when we identify um, people giving selflessly, like these are all acts of excellence that aren't always within the church. We can find these all over. Let these things be a part of your mind. If there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Your, your lived life is a result of your thought life. And Paul here, he creates this filter. And he's very specific with the words that he uses. Because he wants truth to reign. But he wants truth to be guided by some of these other pieces, those things of excellence, those things of praiseworthiness, of, of, of winsome, of, of calling out the lovely things, of calling out love that you see around you. Like all these pieces that need to begin to reshape the patterns of our thoughts and our mind. The next verse convinces us of this though. This idea that your lived life is a result of your thought life. Verse 9 says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. I love this verse because it convinces us of two truths. First, it, it convinces us that it's possible to live this way. 
Because if it wasn't possible to live this way, then Paul would not have said, you see these things in me, follow what I'm doing. Paul wouldn't have said that. Paul wasn't a man of pride. And so Paul would have said, if this is impossible to do, he would have said, look to Christ for your model on this. Look to Jesus. But no, Paul is saying, actually, I'm living this way. These patterns of thought are active and alive in the way in which I live my life. So follow me as I follow Christ. And so there's so much hope here because we can live this way. But the second thing that we see here is his presence is a promise. His presence, God's presence is the promise of a renewed mindset. As we begin to shape and reshape the patterns of thinking in partnership with the word of God and the Holy Spirit bringing revelation and grace, we can reshape the way we think. And there is a, there is a sense of the presence of God that brings us peace as we do. And this is the promise that we have. I don't know about you, but I love Philippians 4, 6 to 7, just before these verses that we looked at today. In fact, people ask, what's my favorite? This is kind of like one of my favorite promises in Scripture. In verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And it's funny because um, like you, perhaps, I often stop here. I often stop here. I don't read the rest. But verses 8 to 9 that we just looked at are in context with this promise and with this moment. Bring your requests to God. However, then it goes on in 8 to 9 is telling us, but also pursue a change in the patterns of your thoughts. Pursue a change so that you become less anxious so that your mindset is more in alignment with the truth and the things that are excellent, the things that are praiseworthy, the things that bring life and call out love and all the pieces and are, are full of justice, full of your duty and responsibility to God and to people around you. And here's what's so interesting about this, because six to seven is really about bringing those moments of anxiety and stress and requests and thanksgiving to God in that moment and laying it at his feet. And so there's kind of this beautiful pairing of these two concepts. Nothing produces peace more than a greater revelation of the God of peace being with you. And nothing gives you greater clarity and understanding that God is with you than changing your mindset to be transformed and renewed in your mind and not conform to the ways of the world. And this changes the way we live in the world because your lived life is a result of your thought life. So friend, I don't know what your situation is. I don't know what your life has been like, but can I just say, if you're in Christ Jesus, you have the mind of Christ. That is just, that is just a truth that is actually kind of mind-blowing and humbling and maybe we don't fully understand and maybe we won't fully understand what that means in this life. But we can begin to pursue that concept. We can begin to pursue that reality. But it's going to take your consistency and your discipline to take inventory of the patterns of thinking you have adopted over the years. And running it through this filter. Is it true? 
Is it honorable? Does it have the dignity of holiness upon it? Is it just? Is it just? Is there a sense of duty to God and a duty to others on your thoughts? Is it pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, praiseworthy? If so, think about these things. Let those things fill your mind. Let them change your mind. And this is how in a world, biblical worldview, we mind our mind. Because your lived life is a result of your thought life. So Lord, we thank you, Holy Spirit, for this reminder. Lord, I thank you for this reminder this week as I took time to prepare for this. Lord, as you uh, challenge my thoughts, challenge my thinking, Lord, would you take us on a journey of aligning our thought life, the patterns of our thinking, to be renewed by your word, to be renewed by the Holy Spirit, that, Lord, we may sense in greater measure and know in greater measure the presence of the God of peace who is with us. Lord, we thank you for what you're doing in our hearts and in our minds today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, thanks for joining us. I hope you have a great week.